Good morning, church family. It is uh, so good to be together uh, as it is each week when we gather together. What, um, what a gift it is to be together with God's people. Um, and what a gift it is uh, to raise, uh, exalt the name of the Lord together, uh, to sing alongside brothers and sisters who believe in the mighty name of Jesus. And so I'm so thankful for you guys and for the opportunity the Lord has given us each week as we gather. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in our series called From Garden to Glory, and we're tracing the larger picture of the Bible, the story the whole Bible tells. And we're doing this with with this conviction in mind, uh, that the Bible is no series of disconnected fables. It's not written like that. In fact, Jesus said that beginning with the Torah, with the law, and, and then through the prophets and the Psalms, all the scriptures, he said, are telling a greater story. And they're telling a story about me, he said. They're telling a story of our Savior, our King, Jesus. And so over the last two weeks, we, we have begun with the beginning of the story. Uh, and as we looked uh, in the first week, we looked at the creation. We saw God as the master creator, that he created everything from nothing. And he looked out and, at what he had made and he said, it's good. And, he, and, and the Lord stitched together the most intricate tapestry. I mean, we can look and just see now how beautiful what God has made is. Beautiful lights and darks, colors and smells, plants, creatures, water, land, all in harmony with their creator. His power and his grace being at the center. Colossians says that all things were made by him and he holds all of it together. The Lord Jesus does. And then then last week, we saw sin. Sin was the serrated knife's edge cutting through the masterpiece. And what remained after sin came in, it looked the same. Now, only with clothing added and a pail of shame. There's discoloration. Uh, I don't know if you ever had, had something broken something like maybe a piece of decor or a toy that your kids loved and it was broken but you did your best like you put it back together you glued it together um, and if you just set it out just right it looked fine but as soon as somebody went to mess with it it was going to fall back apart Uh, we we have at my house we have glued the same Rapunzel head back on the, uh, the Christmas ornament every year and she just doesn't sing the same anymore um but, uh, but there she is, head apart from body in the box when we pull her out. Um, <laughs> I want you just to imagine that next morning after the fall, when Adam and Eve woke up outside the garden. Imagine how fearful that day would have been. Imagine their anxiety. This is a new feeling for them. Was this a dream? How, how deep would the effects of this sin run? Like, is there a glue that can patch all this back together? And, and as we follow the story of, of the first man, the first woman, we follow those first anxious days and, and even generations after the fall. Like, what, what has sin done to humanity? What was the extent of the fall? And could, could they shake it? Could we shake it? Or are they compromised down to their core? In today's text, it's going to be a bit of a flyover through the next eight or nine chapters of Genesis. Uh, But humanity finds itself in these chapters no longer in the garden, but in the wilderness. No longer a clear vision of the future. It's cloudy. 
And though we don't live in that same morning after uh, in the garden, don't you still feel the weight of it? Like things are just not right all the time, are they? The future is still sometimes cloudy. E- even now, you can, you can feel it. Nothing, nothing is just as it should be. And in these next nine or so chapters, the, the, the question is going, uh, we'll beg the question, is there hope? Who can rescue them and rescue us from this body of death? So let's, let's find out. As we take the next step in the story, I, I want us to answer four questions this morning. Number one, how far did we fall? Number two, what is the way out? Number three, will grace abound? And then number four, can we trust the promise? Let's go now to the Lord and let's ask him to help us. Father, we are, we are without hope and understanding who you are, without knowing your word, without experiencing your grace, unless you move by your spirit. So would you work today through your word? Would you move uh, in our hearts to show us the beauty and the face of Jesus? Church, right where you are, just just pray and ask the Lord to help you, to, to help as you listen, that he would soften your heart, that you would hear and believe. I want you to pray for me, that I would speak only what God would have me say, that, that we would hear from him. Lord, we love you. Would you help us? Remove where there's, where there's anxiety. Would you give us uh, rest that we might listen and hear? Would, where, where there's distraction, would you, would you focus us on, on your word and on your son? Lead us now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we begin with number one, how far did we fall? How far did we fall? You may be going, well, man, this kind of sounds like where we've been. Um, but don't worry, we keep going. How far do we fall is a question that keeps going. In Genesis chapter four, what's the first thing we read about post-fall, post-garden life? Adam and Eve do what? They have a baby. The world's first birth announcement. Eve conceived and gave birth to a son named Cain. And we, and we hear this news as a reader with kind of guarded optimism. Like, okay, is this good? Uh, maybe this will be the, the serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15. Maybe he'll make sin's triumph a short one. And, and the answer, unfortunately, comes quickly as we see Cain experiencing what, what will become to define post-garden life, difficulty in relating to God, a fractured relationship both with God and with others, with his brother, jealousy toward his own brother. And what's the result? The very first son born to the very first woman murders the very first little brother. Well, there's, there's our answer. Sin's effects were not 
left behind in the garden. No, oh, it, it, is, it is very much with us. It's a contagion, it seems, soon to affect all those born on the earth. And, and what's the punishment for Cain? God banishes him even further, not only just from the garden, but now into the wilderness, away from family. God says to him, you'll be a restless wanderer. Okay, so if the very first birth announcement had some kind of cautious optimism, uh, perhaps one of the most dreadful birth announcements in the Bible comes just 16 verses later in verse 17, where we read, Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Cain's lineage is one of pain. We see it so clearly and infected by the fall. He is fruitful, but he's multiplying sin bringing about a family that, that's like himself, growing in sin. And, and this was no little campsite out in the wilderness. No, we, read that, that, that we see that Cain became a builder. He built a city, named it after his son. And now six grandsons in, so we just go a few generations in, we begin to see violence, polygamy, vengeance. They're writing poems about vengeance six generations later. Cain's city was not... God's people in God's place with God's blessing. No, it was a broken people building their own place. Now we also see Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, who would become the descendant that we, that we follow his line. But sin is everywhere, even in Seth's line. So in chapters one and two, we, we've seen creation. Chapter three, we see the fall. And now in chapters four and five, sin is increasing. And the journey downward just continues Though there's hope with Seth's birth, the trajectory is just going in the wrong direction. Humanity is growing, but it's not growing like a beautiful cultivated garden. Uh, it's more like a nasty, thorny weed taking over the creation. We're still looking for like a good, a good birth announcement, something, a good offspring. But by chapter six, even that dream is fading. Humanity is described in chapter six uh, as, as corrupt, almost as demonic. And all, all this evil culminates in this, in Genesis 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. Now, this word regret, I, I, I think is one that is not, it's not as we would understand the word regret. This doesn't mean God's looking at creation and going, oh no, what did I do? Uh, not, not only would that be uh, inconsistent with the rest of scripture, but this word is a word of of utter grief and sorrow. Of making man has caused God grief. It's caused him to be sorry. And, and very quickly, isn't it amazing that the creator of the universe would endure grief so that he will be able to show mercy even from the beginning, God enduring the grief of mankind. Ephesians 1 says this about this whole plan of God. 
In Ephesians 1, chapter 9, so now, verse 9, we're going into the New Testament now to kind of to pull some of this together. Uh, Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. There, there is a will of God that will not be thwarted. And, and of course, we, we want to know like, okay, but why? Why sin? Like, why a serpent? Why why the fall? Like, I, I wish I had an answer, a full, a full answer for all those questions. And I think if someone tells you they got all the full answers for why, uh, maybe the whole problem of evil, they've got it solved. Maybe just be wary of that person. Uh, but but here's, here's what, I, what I do know. Here, here's what God's word says, that there is a plan. And look just a couple verses earlier in Ephesians. Here we see some of that plan, verse Verse four, Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is going back to before creation. He chose us to be holy and blameless in him, or in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Look, I, I don't fully know the why of the fall. But I do know the result, that God's grace is on display. His grace is made much of. And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis chapter 4. As God grieves the faithfulness or the fallenness of humanity, verse 8 is like this ray of hope out of nowhere. And it goes like this. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. This is Genesis 6. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Which leads to number two. What's the way out? Listen one more time. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Okay, this is like this this should be like really surprising as we're reading. Like like sunlight just bursting into a dark room. Uh, our fall was deep, our corruption immeasurable. But what is the way out? The way out is grace. Now you may read this and go. Okay, well, I, I, it sounds like it's saying that God saw everyone on the planet was evil and he found one good man. And, and we kind of like that narrative, don't we? Like be the one fish swimming upstream uh, when the world bows the knee, be a Daniel. Uh, we, we like that story, right? We like that narrative. And I'm not saying that those are good. That's some, there's some good wisdom in those things. But we like that. Why? Because we're the hero in that story. But that's not what this expression means. Noah did not achieve favor from God, he received favor from God. This is not God responding to Noah and going, you look pretty good there, Noah, I'm going for you. No, this is God moving with action. God's righteous judgment pointed at all of his creation, but his mercy, his grace poured out toward Noah. All of creation deserved judgment, even Noah, but God gave him mercy. Well, you might go, well, that's not fair. Like, why just save Noah? And doesn't the Bible call Noah righteous? Maybe he is the good guy. But remember how Hebrews describes this in Hebrews chapter 11. It doesn't say, by faith, Noah was a stand-up guy. God finally found someone worth saving. It's not what, that would be a strange verse anyway. Uh, but it's not what it says. No, we read in Hebrews 11, verse seven, by faith, Noah, 
after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Noah didn't devise a rescue plan. God in his grace chose Noah to receive a rescue plan. And by faith, Noah heard the plan and he believed it. He believed the promise that God had made. And God's plan wasn't, all right, Noah, you and me, let's do this together. No, God says back in Genesis 6, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant, my promise, my, my covenant with you. And you will enter the, the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wife. God's saying, this is my thing, my promise. Here was the only way forward for humanity. God's grace given to Noah, though he deserved nothing but judgment. And then Noah trusts God at his word. And we read at the end of Hebrews eleven seven, and Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So there's Noah and his righteousness. But he trusts God and God grants him righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. And isn't this how God relates to us? Our world says the very opposite, doesn't it? Our world says if you do good, you get good. Many religions and many Christians even believe and think this way. If I behave right, I'll get what I want from God. It's, it's moralism. It's, it's quid pro quo. You scratch God's back, he gives you grace. But, but as the kids say, that ain't it, chief. Like, that's not what it is. Sorry. Uh, that, that's not it. They, oh, the kids got it. That ain't it. That's not it. Noah did not, that's not, Noah didn't scratch God's back. And so God gave him something. No, Noah received grace. He received favor. That's not a statement of earning. It's a statement of fact. All undeserving, all in a state of lowliness and humiliation. And the only way up is grace. If you try another way, another savior, God says, you'll be opposed. The proud will be opposed. So after the fall, left to itself, creation was heading to destruction, even Noah. So God made him a promise, but the promise was grace. But to the world that refused his grace, judgment came in with the flood. And it begins to look like a reboot, like a start over. It's creation 2.0, it seems. Genesis 9 sounds a lot like Genesis 1. But instead of Adam and Eve, God is telling Noah and his family, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful. Verse 2, rule the animals. Chapter 9, verse 3, and it's, instead of getting plants for food, you get meat now. Upgrade. It's 2.0. And, and, and he promises he'll never flood the earth again. And, and I think we're tempted to think as, as we read and follow the story, okay, finally. Does that mean, does that mean sin's gone now? I mean, it's like, a, it's like a start over. It's new people uh, filling the earth. The earth, maybe the earth is a new garden now. Maybe the flood washed it all away. My wife uh, and I rescued a cat this year, which you can talk to me later about that. I, I, don't, I don't know how smart we were to do so. Um, but this cat was left uh, in our driveway with the umbilical cord on. This was no like growing thing that had been living in the wild for a while. It was in the crease of the seam of our driveway. That's how small it was. It had fallen down in there with its umbilical cord making really sad noises. This cat, our, our cat 
has never seen another cat. It, it didn't even have its eyes open for like the first week that we had it. Uh, we bottle fed this little thing. It was as small as the palm of our hand and we bottle fed it like a bunch of weirdos. And it, it's our cat baby now. Um, but do you know what this cat does now? Six months or, or so, so old. You know what this cat does when it sees my hand laying on the couch? If you have a cat, you probably know. She crouches down low. Her pupils blow up, like dilate. And then she pounces on my hand and wraps her claws around my arm, rolls over on her back like it's a mouse and she's going to bite the head off of it. And she bites my hand. I saved you. What are you doing? Gosh. No, I didn't teach her that. She didn't see any other cats do that. She, how does she know to do this? It's in her DNA. It's written, on, it's written into her body. Well, guess what happens a couple of chapters after the flood? All new people. They never saw Cain's relatives. A whole, all new generations. They never saw pre-flood world, all the evil that was there. But sin was in their DNA. So what did they do? In Genesis 11, in verse 4, we read, Then they said to one another, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. Mankind doesn't need to know Cain to know that it wants to build cities and make monuments to their own name. You don't need to have lived in the Garden of Eden to know that you want permanence. You want a legacy. You want your, your, your life not to be scattered. You want to be with, they, they want to be a people together, never to be alone. They want to be a place, their, their own Garden of Eden where they'll never be cast out. And they, they want blessing. They want their own name, their, their legacy, something permanent in the wilderness of earth. But I, I, would, I would actually make this argument that this is not in their DNA because of sin. It's in their DNA because God put it there in the garden. Humans didn't want to be God's people, and so they rebelled. They want to make their own name great. They didn't want the grace of God. They didn't want his blessing. But it's in us to want those things. And so as they rebel, what does God do? He scatters them, confuses their languages and their cultures. And so at the end of chapter 11, the fall is complete the tapestry has been completely unraveled. They are not a people. They have no place. And they have no blessing. Which leads to number three. Will grace abound? Will grace abound? So in the rubble of the Tower of Babel, it looks like the family tree is all but dead. And yet grace comes again. This time to a great, great, great grandson of Noah named Abram. And what is Abram doing? Maybe he's serving God. He's out there pushing back the darkness, uh, fighting for what's good. Well, let's see. Joshua chapter 24 tells us what Abraham was up to. Uh, Joshua 24 verses, verse 2. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. 
So meet our protagonist, it seems, Abraham. And what is his family doing? Worshiping idols. Oh yeah, and his wife is barren. I think that was the last thing we got in chapter 11. And I look, I, we like, I, I like Father Abraham, the song, as much as the next person. Um, and it's a great one. Like, and he's, he's, a, he's an amazing uh, person that we get to follow his story in the scriptures. But just like Noah, Abraham is not the hero. God is the hero. God's the hero. Abraham was nothing. And so in that light, in Genesis 12, what we see is one of the most pivotal passages in the Bible. And one of the greatest proclamations of grace. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We read it earlier. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So like, like Noah, notice we don't read. God saw a really great guy and enlisted him in his mission. Nothing about Abraham's life prompted God's grace. And I'm going to use Abraham and Abram interchangeably later. God, if you don't know the story, God changes Abram's name later to Abraham, speaking of he's going to be the father of many. Um, but there's nothing about his life that prompted God's grace. Rather, God comes to this old man, Abram, and what does he promise? All those godly desires that are in your DNA, those ones I gave you, look, I'm going to fulfill them. Verse one, I'll show you a land that will be yours. Verse two, I'll, I'll give you children, not just one, but a whole nation. Later, he's going to say, look at the stars. It's, they're they're going to outnumber the stars. And then in verse three, verse three he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And it won't be by you and it won't be for you. It will be for all the peoples of the earth. And so here's your part, Abram. Believe it. Believe it and walk. Start walking from your home. And this undeserving, idol-worshiping man receives the promise of God. A unilateral covenant from God. Later in chapter 15, at the covenant ceremony where, where God ratifies this, this agreement with Abraham, an animal is killed and God brings a deep sleep upon Abraham. And then God alone by himself completes the ceremony, making very clear this is no two-way contract. My promise to you is irrevocable. He's saying it's as permanent as God himself. John Stott says, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God here in Genesis 12. Now, you may say, okay, well, maybe all of scripture is an unfolding of this promise and there's these, like, all these spiritual realities, but like, there were some really real promises God made to Abraham. Like, like many children, uh, like God gave him like specific land dimensions that, that, that were going to be, belong to his children. Abraham like had tangible expectations and, and he expected these things to happen quickly. So like, how did it turn out? Like, I think we want to know, how, how did it go? 
Well, look, look at verse six. We, we just read some of this earlier. I think this is a good picture of, of Abraham's time in the land. Uh, we start, start at the end of verse five. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. There was famine in the land. So Abraham went down into Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Okay, so the minute Abram shows up in the land of Canaan, what does he find? There's people there. Okay, okay, God, we gotta go down to the title company because somebody already owns this land. We need to sort it out. What's the problem? After all this traveling, after leaving his home, leaving his family, here he is, a stranger in the land of promise. A land he hoped would be his own. But he doesn't turn back. No, he... We read that he worshiped. He makes an altar and he worships at Shechem. They go a little further south and worship again. And they they do this all the way to the southernmost part of Canaan. So they've walked through the land, worshiping God, praising God, even though they're in tents, even though there's people there. And and we get down to the southernmost part of Canaan. We read in verse 10, there's a famine. And so, of course, they're going to go ahead and just go right on out of Canaan into Egypt and stay there for a while. So this is how this is going to work, God. Famine forces them to Egypt. They stay there for a while. If you know the story, Abram, Abram uh, kind of works out a deal with his wife. Abram's, this is not Abram's best moment um, where he basically tells uh, his wife, hey, it'd be better off if they think that you're my sister. You're going to go into Pharaoh's harem either way, uh, but let's do the way that's better for me. Um, so uh, let's try to save me here. Uh, so... I wouldn't recommend that, husbands. Not a good plan. Uh, but basically at this point, the whole thing is a disappointment. It, it, the, the land is a disappointment. Abraham is even a disappointment. And yet what, the, what, what happens? Despite Abram, God protects Sarah. He provides food. God uses Pharaoh to stock Abram's uh, camp with with. Uh, cattle and with what things that they need and they take it all with them back to Canaan. So despite Abram's faithlessness, God continues to give grace. Grace again, over and over. God teaching Abraham this lesson. The blessings you receive are not because of your goodness, but because I am good, because I am faithful and full of mercy. So what, what are we to make of all this difficulty that he has in the land Abraham, he could have stayed in Ur. Ur was a pretty technologically advanced place. It was a nice place to live. It was home. And here he is now in the land of promise. And he's waking up every morning on a dirt ground in a tent, cooking over a fire that he just made, feeding livestock in fields that aren't even his, worried, looking over his shoulder the whole time, no borders, no protection, waiting for someone to come attack. The one to whom God made this promise of land is a stranger. He's a squatter. He's a trespasser. And it doesn't stop there. If you read most of the rest of Genesis, in nearly every other chapter, it feels like Abraham, his son Isaac, and and Isaac's son Jacob, they're like always moving. 
and never staying anywhere very long, chased out by famine, chased out by attackers, in search of a new place to settle, gathering with family here or there, uh, generations of tent dwellers. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this disappointment and the promise? Number four, can we trust the promise? I think Hebrews 11 helps to make a little sense of this as, as it gives us a picture of what's going on with Abraham. We read this in Hebrews 11 and verse nine. By faith, he, Abraham, stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The life of faith, our life of faith, is full of disappointments, right? Full of them. Pain, heartache. And we, we aren't moralists who just say, look, I know prosperity and comfort is just around the corner. If I just do what God said, it's all gonna be great. I'll be happy, I'll be healthy, I'll be wealthy, it'll be good. Moralism is a really small story. It's a fraud and it's, it's centered on self. But the life of faith is a huge story. It's God's story. His promises are bigger than anything you could see now. Anything that you could imagine. Abram believed that he was part of something bigger than himself. And Abraham was looking to the future city that God was going to build. And this kind of faith made his nomad life possible. It does it for us too. When life disappoints, faith, faith remembers and trusts that the sufferings of this present age don't compare to the glory that's coming. That something better than tent life is coming for us. Now, if I, if I was writing this screenplay, I, act one, I think this would all be act one. Like, act, it's great. A lot of disappointment, a lot of strife. You need the tension in a good story. I love it. All the conflict, good, that's great. But act two, here's what I would, here's what I would do. I, I would have Jacob and Isaac riding into town with old man, grandpa Abraham walking behind them. And they're walking back into town. And in some big majestic moment, God wipes out the Canaanites. And then we get to see, we focus in, we zoom in, tight, tight camera shot on grizzled old Abraham sitting on the front porch of his promised land cabin watching all the grandbabies, all the generations playing out on the field. I didn't write it. You didn't write the story. I didn't either. This is God's story. And here's what Hebrews says about how it, how it really ended for Abraham. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, these all died, these all being his, Abraham's family, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. They died. They died like, without the land, without the promise. What, like, they lived in tents and died. What an anticlimax. But look again. Look at verse 13. How did they die? These all died in faith. The promise never happened in this life. They were never home, always temporary, nothing seeming to last, but their faith in the promise was solid. Even when their life on earth ended, the promise remained. 
they knew their story wasn't over. Their inheritance was still to come. So, so I ask, what, what, what thing are you longing for in this life? What, what good godly gift do you hope for that you really are hoping that God would bring about, that God would, would make, uh, that he would have, have a promise that you could believe that that would happen? Maybe you're a kid. Our elementary kids are family service, so a lot of our elementary kids are here. Maybe y'all are, you're here and you're like, man, I, I just want to grow up. I want to I wanna do something great. I want to go to college. I want to get my driver's license. Maybe you're going, I, I just want the gift of, of a godly spouse and a godly marriage. Maybe it's, I, I want the gift of a, of a family. I want to start a family. I want to raise kids. I want to teach them how to live, to, how to know the beauty of Jesus. Or maybe that you're, you're now clinging to another hope, another promise that, that, that the gospel that you imparted to your children will bring them back. That those, that those prodigals will return back to the Lord. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's the latter part of life. Maybe it's retirement. Oh, oh I, I just hope for the gift when I'll have the time to, to finally do the ministry that I want to do. To, to finally get my kids off the payroll. To finally have, have the free time to rest and, and to really invest my life into something that I want to invest it into. What, what good thing, what, what God thing do you, do you really want? That, it feels like a, a promise. It feels like a promised land. Maybe it's so close. Maybe it's like, man, it's almost here. We're, we're, we're almost there. I can taste it. Would God be good to you if that never happened? Would God be enough for you if that thing you're hoping in never came in this life? If you never received it, never experienced it? Abraham, his, his family, they could taste it. They were, they were literally looking out at the fields that they thought would be theirs, but they, they got to hold it almost. But Hebrews says they died having not received it. But the promise was doing something in them. Look at the end of verse 13. But they saw them, they saw the promises from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Verse 14, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. At the end of Abram's life, as he died in faith, he was able to say what I hope that we're able to say is that we believe this life can never really live up to the hype. This, this faith, this kind of faith says, I love my life here. To live is Christ. It's wonderful. But as much as I want this life to fulfill every longing that I have, it can't. It won't. And if I, if I try to make it do that for me, I will, I will be crushed by it. No, we want to seek a better homeland. C.S. Lewis, in his famous excerpt uh, from his book, Mere Christianity, says it this way. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation it is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. 
there are times in this life where it feels like I'm almost there. Like I've, I've almost got it all. I'm almost, I, my, all my hopes are just like right, they're just right over the hill. And then they, they'll be gone. They'll feel like they're there and then they'll kind of fade. And the Christian, the Christian sees a, a different thing. The Christian knows better. The Christian can smile at those joys getting near and then like Abraham, see them for what they really are. Abraham saw the promised land from a distance. He greeted the promises and he rejoiced and praised God. And notice that we, we don't read Abraham rested knowing that one day Jacob would have 12 sons and together they would grow into the 12 tribes of Israel and they would become a nation. And then though aspects of that are coming, like there is going to be a nation. There, there will be some fulfillment, but, but, but it, we'll, we'll find out it's not gonna be, really even be then what, what they hoped. No, we, but we read that he was looking to something even beyond that. He was looking to God. In an amazing twist, Jesus says in John chapter eight, here's what Abraham, here's what Abraham was truly rejoicing in. In John eight fifty six, we read, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham didn't know the fullness of what Christ would bring but he trusted God was bringing his king and his kingdom that God would keep every one of his promises. That all the promises of God, we know this now, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And we know now, Abraham knows now that Jesus, his true son, Abraham's true son, is the only hope for blessing for the whole world. God is bringing his promise to pass. And we are now the recipients the promise to Abraham is now a promise to you that you will be blessed by Jesus Christ. Are you looking to him? Have you believed, Christian, that there's something more precious out there, some other hope that will be better than Christ? Turn from it. It won't satisfy. Turn to Jesus. And may we say with Abraham, I'm a temporary resident here. There's no lasting city for me. And let us long for the city that Christ will bring, a new heaven, a new earth, for a forever home with the people of God and with our Savior. Because he is the only promise that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we believe and the reality of the promises that you have given to us. Lord, Lord, that there is glory for us, that there is a new heaven and a new earth that is for those who have trusted in you, that there is eternal life, that there is abundance. But Lord, we also don't believe. We believe what we don't. Would you help our unbelief? Where, where what we see on this earth disappoints us, frustrates us, makes us despair. Lord, would you draw our eyes upwards? Would we see Christ? And would he be what satisfies? Would he be what we long for? Lord, we love you. Would you help us to truly enjoy our Savior, to truly be satisfied by him? I want you just to ask the Lord now 
God, would you help me see it? Would you help me see what, what hope I'm holding on to that I've convinced myself will satisfy me more than Christ? Ask him to show it to you. Ask him to reveal himself. Lord, would you be the answer to every single other hope we've thought of right now? Would you be the satisfaction to even the things this week that we think will will make it for us? Would you make us a steady people, steadied by your promise, steadied by what you're bringing, not rocked by pain in this life, but sure, because of the promises that are ours in Christ. We love you. Make us this kind of people. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.